دوستا سلام به قسمت چلومه پادکست جانه میوان خوش آمدین در برنامه با پروفیسور خیل فندن آکر صحبت میکنم پروفیسور فندن آکر استاد تیوری تاریخ و فلسفه تاریخ در دانشگاه فری یونیورسیتیت امستردام در کشور هالند هستند و در بخش هنر و فرهنگ تاریخ و آثار باستانی تدریس میکنند ایشان کتابهای زیاد نوشتند پروفسور فندن آکر در سال 2009 دکترای خود را در رشته تاریخ و فلسفه تاریخ از دانشگاه رادباوت یونیورسیتی نایمیخن دریافت کرد و او همچنان مدیر مسئول مجله بین المللی فلسفه تاریخ است هدف اصلی نشست ما با پروفسور فندن آکر بحث و صحبت در مورد تازهترین و پرفروشترین کتابشان بود کتاب The Modern Idea of History and Its Values یا به فارسی ایده مدرن تاریخ و ارزش‌های آن که در سال 2020 منتشر شد خیلی یک کتاب معتبر قابل فهم و موثر موضوعات اصلی کتاب تاریخ نویسی تاریخ نگاری، ارزش تاریخ و زیربناها و پایه های مختلف فلسفی تاریخ است. شما نسخه کتاب میتونین به دو لسان، لسان انگلیسی و لسان هالندی از آمازون دریافت کنیم. تاریخ چیست؟ آیا تاریخ ساختار و جهت و هدف خاص داره؟ آیا تاریخ ماهیت و معنای خاص داره که بتوان آن را کشف کرد؟ ببینین وقت صحبت از تاریخ میشه عموما همه ما به این نظر میشیم که گویا تاریخ معلم زندگی است دیدگاه رایج است که گذشته در اصل مخزن نمونه هایی است که میتوان از آن درس های اخلاقی آموخت اما آیا این و دیدگاه از تاریخ درست است آیا تاریخ واقعا درس های در مورد خود ما ای که کی هستیم و در مورد طبیعت انسانی ما و ما داره؟ آیا تاریخ میتونه چیز ارزشمنده در مورد روح و ماهیت یک ملت و مردم یک ملت و ما بیان کنه؟ به عبارت دیگه آیا میتوان از تاریخ پند گرفت؟ پروفیسور خیلفندن آکر پاسخها و بینشهای بسیار زاد جالب و آموزنده در مورد یمه سوالات فلسفی به من ارائه کردن که من ازشان البته خیلی سپاسگزار هستم من زمنان با پروفسور در مورد تحلیل تاریخ نیاز به حقیقت و عینیت در تاریخ نویسی یا Value of Truth and Objectivity میارهای اخلاقی یک معرخ یا تاریخ نویس واقع گرایی یا ریالزم و ارزش بینش تاریخی تعریف و درک تاریخ روندها و فهم روندهای تاریخی نقش هنر و سیاست در تاریخ نویسی و تاریخ نگاری و ارتباط بین تاریخ، روایت و میل به عدالت در مورد همه این مسائل صحبتها و بحثهای بایشان داشتم البته در همچو بحثهای تاریخی و فلسفی نمیشه بزرگان تاریخ و فلسفه را نادیده گرفت بنابراین بحث ما بیشتر بر اساس اندیشه های بزرگان تاریخ و فلسفه کسان مانند هیگل، کارل مارکس، 
و فریدرش نیچه بود. ببینین ما امروز شایدم بیشتر از هر چیز دیگه و همچون بحث های بنیادی و اساسی و ریشهی ضرورت داریم. بس در مورد ماهیت اصول ما. بس در مورد امیقترین افکار، اعتقادات و ایده های ما. کشور افغانستان بار دیگه در یک بحران عمیق قرار گرفته. در طول تاریخ کشور، نه تنها سیاست و بازی های سیاسی و اقتصادی که رخ دادن متاسفانه بیهوده و مسخره بوده بلکه درک مردم از خودشان و تاریخ کشورشان متاسفانه نیز ناقص بوده بدون شک و انتقاد بالای ارزشمندترین باورهای دینی و سیاسی و فلسفی ما چگونه میتونیم هرگز به حقایق نزدیکتر شویم شنوندی عزیز امروز شاعر میای و ادا میکنه که ایران است در حالی که باید میگفت تاجک است چون همه هوش و فکر و تمرکزش بالای تاجک بودنش و سیاست های غلط و شوم هویتیش است نه بالای ایرانی بودنش فعال حقوق بشر ادا میکنه که قلبش به مردم افغانستان میتپه در حالی که باید میگفت قلبش فقط و فقط به قوم مشخص یعنی قوم پشتون میتبه و نه به تمام مردم افغانستان اینها متاسفانه همان منافقین زیرک هستند که قلمک میزنند و تاریخ یک کشور بیرحمانه بازنویسی میکنند نفرت و کدورت و تعبیز قومی را در میان پیروانشان دامن میزنند و گسترش میدن و او هم به دلیل خودنمایی و لایک ها و شاباز گفتن های همسالان و هم مفکرانشان اینها روشنفکر نه بلکه روشنفکر نما هستند اینها فاندامنتالیست های سیاسی و دینی نه بلکه قومگران و قبیلگران بنیادگر هستند اینها همه کسایی هستند که نقد نمیکنند نقد میزنند امروز روزنامه‌نگار جرات کرده به ما میگه ما همه فاشیست هستیم زیرا تاریخ کشور هنوز به درستی درک نکردیم کس دیگه به ما میگه ما همه مرتد و کافر هستیم چون اسلام به شکل درسته که آنها درک کردن ما درک نکردیم دوست دیگه به ما میگه یک لیبرال و یک دموکرات است اما وقت ازش سوال میشه که آیا در کشور ایدیال که مد نظر داره به مخالفین فکریشم جا است میگه نه کسی در صفحه سوشال میدیای خود آمده به ما از فهم و دانش و درک فوقلادهی که از تاریخ کشور داره صحبت میکنه. گویا کدام اکادیمیسیان حرفوی یا تاریخ نگار هستند. امروز دیگه به نظر میرسه همگی همه چیز در مورد هر چیز میدانند و ضرورت به کدام نوگفتگو یا دیالوگ ندارند. ولی به هر حال شاید بگوین من ساده دل و به تجربه هستم اما من انوزم باورمند ای عقیده کلاسیک هستم که ممکن است با درک بیشتر از تاریخ و فلسفه تاریخ با گفتگو با اندیشمندان بدانیم خود ما را و عقاید ما را بهتر بشناسیم و شایدم با کمک همین نوه خودشناسی بالاخره بتانیم همدگر حداقل تحمل کنیم و برای حل مشکلات ما رای حل اساسی و پایدار بسنجیم وگرنه تا زنده استیم تا به این و آن و 
فاندامنتالیست های قومی و مذهبی و سیاسی خواهیم بود در نتیجه به همین دلیل من البته تلاش میکنم تا با دانشمندا و کارشناسان گفتگوهای سازنده و علمی داشته باشم تا تانسته باشم اول از همه درک و فهم خود را چیز افزایش داره باشم طوری که در برنامه های قبلی هم یادآور شدیم ما البته همه ای گفتگوها را به شکل صوتی در خدمت شما عزیزا میگذارم تا شما نیز از یه همه گفت و شنودها بهرمند شوید اما خواهش دوستانه بنده از شما عزیزایی که همین لحظه صدای مرا میشوین ایست که لطفا لطفا فراموش نکنین که برنامه را لایک کنین و با دیگه دوستا شیر کنین وظیفه ما ایست که برنامه های جالب و آموزنده را کاملا رایگان خدمت شما دوستای نازنین پیشکش کنم و وظیفه شما منعیس شنونده پادکست جادی میوند ای باید باشه که لطف کرده برنامه های مورد علاقه تانه تا حد امکان ارزش قائل شوین و با دیگه دوستا در صفحات شبکه های اجتماعی تان به اشتراک بگذارین بدون شک با ای کارتان میزبانتان تشویق میکنین تا روی برنامه های بهتره در آینده کار کنه و خدمتتان پیشکش کنه ممنون هم عزیزانه که همیشه برنامه را لایک میکنن و با دیگه دوستا به اشتراک میگذارن خانه آباد خب و حالا ای شما و ای هم پروفیسور خیل فندناکر Today I'm speaking with Professor Achiel van den Acker. He is a lecturer in historical theory at the Department of Art and Culture, History and Antiquities at the Freie Universiteit Amsterdam. He is the author of several books. Uh, the main topic of our conversation today is uh, going to be his latest book, The Modern Idea of History and Its Value, an Introduction, which came out in 2020. And he also published The Exemplifying Past, A Philosophy of History, that was published in 2018. Uh, Professor van den Acker received his PhD in philosophy from uh, Radboud University, Nijmegen, in 2009. It is there that he also graduated cum laude in history. Uh, he is also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of the Philosophy of History. Professor Giel van den Acker, thank you so much for joining me. I'm glad to be here. Um, was that a fair summary, by the way, uh, of your bio? Did I miss anything? No, no, it's perfect. Okay, great. So I guess, is, is my understanding correct? You are both a historian and a philosopher of history at the same time? Yep, true. Okay. True, yeah. All right. So maybe I should start by asking you um, how you got uh, interested in history and philosophy of history. Um, was it your interest in history that kind of you know, led you to its philosophy or, or perhaps uh, the other way around, you know, your interest in philosophy of history that kind of pushed you towards the study of history? Uh, no, the, the, the first, right. I started as a history student in, uh, uh, I think it was the 1990s, yeah. And, uh, well, after two years, uh, I was thinking, um, well, I, I, I need some more, um, general insights or knowledge about uh, the way the world works. Um, I mean, history is a very interesting uh, study to do, uh, but it's always, of course, rather focused on specific events, processes, 
uh, specific time, places, persons, etc. Um, and I wanted, well, something extra apart from that. And, um, well, we had several courses on historical theory or philosophy of history. Uh, and I always, I also thought, well, let, let's, let's go to the philosophy department and see what courses they have uh, to offer. So I took some general courses like uh, uh, philosophy of science, um, medieval philosophy, logic, those kinds of courses. And, well, I thought, well, the combination is very, very interesting. Um, I mean, philosophy is, of course, a very historical discipline. When you start mm -hmm. studying philosophy, you start by studying philosophers in the past, right? And uh, so it's not that the two disciplines are very dissimilar, uh, that there's overlap, mm -hmm. uh, but philosophy is, of course, more systematic, uh, more, more general. It answers different, different sorts uh, of questions. Um, so, so I thought the questions that philosophers ask are perhaps a bit more interesting than the questions that historians ask. But perhaps that, that was also, of course, depending on my rather limited view at the time. I specialized in philosophy of history eventually, and I made a career out of that. And, and now I realize that the sort of questions that historians uh, uh, ask uh, may very well be as interesting as the sort of questions that philosophers ask. But that that's wisdom that you gain throughout uh, the years. But as a student uh, at the time, uh, well, I, I more or less really thought or believed that uh, the sort of questions that philosophers were asking were a bit more interesting. But So that, that that's perhaps how things turned out the way they did. Okay, so I, I really wonder, you know, when it comes to history and philosophy of history. I mean, if you take these two things as two uh, different disciplines, uh, right, can we or should we disentangle these two or do they kind of always have to go hand in hand kind of together? You know, one, one, if you're doing history, at least you're expected to do also a little bit of philosophy of history and, and the other way around. So how does this work? Of course, most historians simply do history. And they are not very much interested in what philosophers have to offer. Many philosophers do a form of history, uh, a history of ideas or intellectual history. They focus on specific um, authors in specific time and places and, and their specific conceptions and how they uh, relate to uh, certain traditions of thought. Um, of course, there's also a group of philosophers we say, well, we simply are not interested in history. We're doing only systematic uh, stuff. Um, past philosophers are perhaps of historical interest only, but not for me as a philosopher. So perhaps there are two groups, two sorts of philosophers, those very much doing um, mm. uh, the history of philosophy or taking the history of philosophy into account in their own work and uh, a group uh, focusing on mm. systematic questions regardless of uh, uh, past thought. Historians, on the other hand, well, most of them simply are not interested in uh, what philosophy <coughs> philosophy does or has to offer. That That's just the way things are. That's interesting. Before we actually start discussing your book, uh, Professor, I would, I would like to emphasize actually um, 
how and why I got interested in your work in the first place. So I have recently started a series of podcasts uh, where I invite historians and talk with them, you know, about their work. The majority of the listeners of the podcast are Farsi or Dari speakers. You know, these are Persian dialects. And most of them are from Afghanistan. And um, that's also my country of origin, uh, by the way. So, you know, while, while I was researching uh, the great works of these historians, um, it kind of struck me that I actually had a hard time understanding the nature of their work. You know, how did they arrive at certain conclusions? How did they select their sources? You know, um, why uh, did they decide to leave out certain facts uh, and things like this? And and this kind of led me to your work. Um, now, I have to say, uh, you know, to our listeners, you know, you've written this beautiful, original and very accessible book called The Modern Idea of History and Its Value, which... For me personally, it was a perfect uh, introduction to the idea of history, you know, its value and and also, you know, the, the philosophical backgrounds of uh, philosophical underpinnings of, of history. Um, I really, really enjoyed uh, reading it. It perfectly summarizes the history of history or rather the history of history writing, I would say. Uh, but it also discusses a wide range of other interesting topics, you know, with the help of really, really inspiring, influential historians. Um, you know, there are thinkers in your book, and, and you mentioned a couple of philosophers in the book as well, people like Hannah Arendt, Hegel, and probably one of my own favorite philosophers, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche as well. Um, and in the book, you give us like this thematic overview of what we... Um, what we all need to know, uh, you know, about history. And so you do this in seven chapters. So let me start with, um, with a question where you also start in your book. Um, you know, your claim is that what's history and why, why it's useful are basically mutually dependent. Um, you know, as if, as if history and its usefulness are kind of two sides of the same coin. So first of all, what do you mean by this and why are these two things so deeply connected or rather intertwined? Well, uh, thank you very much for your, for your kind words uh, about the book. Um, and indeed, it, it, its starting point is this claim that answering the question, what is history, is already providing an answer uh, to the question, what is, it, what, what is it for or what is it value and, and vice versa. And it, it, it seems rather a simple claim, right? Uh, when you read it, you're not thinking, well, this is a deep insight or something like that. It, it, it seems a rather mundane, perhaps even an obvious claim. Um, but it was not, for me, an obvious claim when I started writing uh, this book. So well, I, it was something I was surprised to find out or realize uh, myself during uh, the conception of this uh, book. Um, when I started the book, I, uh, well, I was asked by uh, the publisher uh, to write an introduction, uh, the basics of the philosophy of history, or the basic of ideas about history. Um, so I had, of course, a long thought about how, um, how to start. And one of the things that you start to do when writing a book is uh, looking at all the books that have already been written that, that are a bit similar and, and to see what, what sort of choices are these authors uh, making. And what I realized at that moment was that it's really difficult to present 
a historical overview uh, if you do not have the time to read all the original works. And that's a handicap that you find in many books. So I thought I need to change uh, the way I work. And I should start with trying to find a few authors that are inspiring, but that allow you to indeed come up with the basics of philosophy of history or the basics of thinking about the idea of history. Well, some authors were rather obvious uh, and some authors uh, not. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but one of the authors that I started to read was, of course, Nietzsche. And I knew his uh, famous uh, uh, work on, on the use and abuse of history. And uh, it starts very simple. History should serve life. And each form or sense of history has its benefits and its downsides. Uh, but the type of history and the type of benefit are always closely connected. So this idea of why does the value of history, or the question to the answer, what is the value of history, is already an answer to the question, what is history, and vice versa, is of course something that is very obvious uh, related in the work uh, of Nietzsche. Um, so then I, I also decided to start the book with him. Because when mm. I realized that uh, those questions are mutually uh, uh, dependent, or the answers to the questions are mutually dependent, I saw it in all the other authors uh, as well. And one of the things that I think is all also important to realize is that there is, of course, in academia, this tendency to emphasize cognitive aspects of academic work rather than its political or moral or ethical implication. So in academia, mm -hmm. we tend to distangle our cognitive work or the cognitive aspects of what it is that we do and its moral, ethical and political implication. Whereas those two cannot really be uh, disentangled. And that's, I think, also one of the important points in the book. Right. And so, yeah, we will come back to Nietzsche, by the way, because he's a really interesting figure in, in, in the history of philosophy. And, and he also has something to tell us about how history works. And he has his own very peculiar ideas about these things. But um, before we do that, so let me uh, ask you another question uh, about where history basically starts. Does history start with the Big Bang, uh, you know, or with the dawn of modern Homo sapiens in Africa? Is that where, where things start, start off for, for us as, as humans? How do we decide where to start when we look back, right? We look at the past. I mean, how do we determine, in a way, the birth of history itself? Can this question even be posed in such a way? Does it even make sense? Or what do you think? Of course, it's a very sensible question. And it has been asked in the past and different answers have been uh, given to it. I, I always like the answer that Hegel gave to it. And he says, well, history and historical events, so both the practice of doing history and an event being an historical event, they both come into being at one and the same time, which is a rather enigmatic statement. But what he means with it is something like... Uh, this. 
when an event occurs in a social political order, it urges us to record that event. And why is that? Because every change in a social political order needs to be reflected upon. Because we need those reflection to think about ourselves as members of some community. So the moment we start recording events in a social political order is the moment history starts. Of course, human beings were, well, the first Homo sapiens, well, then we are talking about 60,000 BC or 80,000 BC, and perhaps some of them also already marked historical events, perhaps with um, in cave paintings or markings on stones or um, uh, also a, a funeral uh, or burying some, some, someone, uh, an important member of a community. Th- those markings of events is, of course, already the start of history. And the stories that you tell about it and transmit to your fellow members of uh, the community in which you live. But of course, we don't have any record of that or hardly any record of that. Mm. So, so everything goes back to wh- whether or not we have records of, of certain times in history. And then that gives us like a, some sort of an idea. Uh, you know, we, we can actually start writing about these things and thinking about it. And then, and then it becomes part of history. Is that, is that what you're saying? Or? Well, we need markings and uh, the transmission of the reflection on those markings. History has always been part, I think, of oral culture. Most of those histories have, of course, uh, disappeared. We we no longer know of them, but they, of course, did exist. Um, So the moment people started to reflect on events happening in their community, and which are events that affect their sense of being a member of a community, and that affects uh, reflection on why should things be this or that way, or perhaps we should change it. That's the moment when history uh, is born. Uh, it allows us, uh, that, well, it's, it's, it's one of the most venerable and old answers to the question, what is history for? It gives us self-knowledge. It tells us who we are as members of a community. Yeah, so... What is history for is obviously, I think, a separate question, right? So, um, I mean, there are many ways to discuss the nature of history itself, right? So, I mean, philosophers, um, as you mentioned in the book, have talked about the nature of historical knowledge and and its justification. Uh, you know, there are semantics involved as well, language. Um, and and so we use a certain language to represent the past, right? And and there is metaphysics involved, uh, metaphysics of, of our existence in time, for example. And we have, you know, questions that have, have to do with ethics and we have value and we have politics of history and all these things. But so let me ask you this, you know, the one question that has, I think, occupied uh, the philosophers' minds for forever, for centuries. And, and the b- big question, right, when it comes to the nature of history, what is history? Uh, you know, what is the difference between when we say the past and history? And I, I, and I think you mentioned already that there must be some sort of a marking and then some reflection on that marking. 
But is that everything? So I think it's a, it's a question that people have tried to answer for a very long time, isn't it? Yep, true. And what I think is an important answer to the question is the realization that an event is historical in as much as it occurs in a social political context. I think that's a crucial aspect because that immediately uh, directs you to the relation between history and community. As a member of a community, you need to appropriate certain events as being part of the history of that community, which makes it part of your history as well. I think that's a crucial aspect uh, of it. Right, right. Okay. Let me get into the... What I would like to ask is when, when it comes to history and historians, I always wonder, is history really a scientific activity, a scientific endeavor, if you will, right? So do I need like a, do I need to have a PhD to do history writing or, or is history more like an art where, you know, anyone who is um, reporting on events can be considered a historian? And I'm, I'm asking because um, it's not always that clear, right? Uh, you know, I'll give you the example of Anne Frank. You know, when Anne Frank was, was writing her private diary, she wasn't thinking, you know, I'm writing official historical work. Um, you know, but her diary is referred to uh, as a historical document, and I believe um, has also been used by historians, right, to refer to it as a credible source. And I can say the same thing might, as we speak, be happening to an Afghan girl in somewhere like Kabul, who is right now writing diary, you know, of the, the daily, uh, of her daily life, basically, uh, you know, what she's going through, what she's experiencing, all of this under the Taliban regime, right? And she's not thinking I'm, I'm writing some sort of a historical document, right? So can we say that, you know, Anna Frank, and besides being an obviously incredibly talented writer, was in a sense also a historian? Well, I wouldn't say that. Uh, but for a different reason than you might uh, uh, expect. I mean, there is, of course, academic history writing. But history writing, of course, is, is, is also, for example, present in myth. History writing can also be done through dance. I mean, there, there, there are all sorts of ways of relating yourself to the past. And you can, relating yourself to the past is what history is about. Uh, so there are many variants of right. There's a variety of expressions of historical consciousness. Different cultures have different sorts of expressing their historical consciousness. Uh, so that's a really a broad. That's very Hegelian of in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but why is Anna Frank not an historian? It's because history is always concerned with a certain discrepancy between the point of view of the historical agent and a point of view available later in time. And it's this discrepancy between those points of view in which history, in a sense, is born. Because when you only have the contemporary, contemporaneous point of view, the point of view of the witness or the point of view of the agent, the world isn't historical yet. Anna Frank describes the world as she experiences it. It's not an historical world yet. The historical world is a world that comes into being 
after later events are connected with the events that Anna Frank talks about. And there is this discrepancy between what Anna Frank can write about, can see and experience, and what historians later in time uh, can write about it. So I think these, this shift from point of view, from a contemporaneous agent or witness-centered point of view to a narrator's point of view later in time, that's a necessary condition for history, for there being history. Right. So you, you have this first person's perspective, which is happening. You know, the, the world is happening and this person is experiencing it. This is, this is one thing. And then someone else, you know, comes along and then actually reflects on this person's, you know, uh, worlds, you know, the things that were happening at that time. And that reflection creates some sort of a narrative and that narrative then somehow becomes history about that specific period of time. And to, to give a very simple example, suppose that the Germans had won the war. The diary of Anna Frank would be a rather different document, right? So, so later events determine uh, the historical meaning of previous events. But Anna Frank could not write from the perspective of Germans losing the war. Anna Frank could not write from the perspective of the realization of the atrocities of uh, uh, the Nazis. But when we look, when we read Anna Frank's diary, we do so from precisely that perspective, which, may, which historicizes the diary and makes it part of an historical world, which it was not, which it was not for Anna Frank. Yes, but uh, obviously I think if the Germans had won the war, I don't even think that book would have survived anyways. I mean, no one would even notice or note, or it, it would have been erased from history somehow by, by the Germans. I think that's my... my uh... Yeah, but suppose, uh, imagine it did not. <laughs> okay. And it was uh, shipped to uh, some, uh, well, uh, some place outside of uh, uh, the European hemisphere and right. uh, an historian would use it as an historical source. Mm. It, it would be a very different sort of document. Okay. So from the German perspective, let's go to the alien perspective. I have actually a question about that. So suppose that um, within a hundred years or so, humans go extinct uh, because of some catastrophic event. Uh, maybe we destroy ourselves, you know, or our nature destroys us. Uh, I would think global warming is a good candidate for this. Um, suppose planet Earth is then kind of visited by these aliens and since they are great archaeologists and historians, uh, they try to kind of reconstruct the human history on this planet, right? Now, imagine they start with um, analyzing the first remains of Homo sapiens in Africa, and then they kind of carry on their research up until we went extinct. Now, how would they tell the human history to their peers back home, right? W would they find patterns, directions, purpose, some sort of a randomness, would they, would they say, well, the humans were doomed from the very beginning and we can actually see that? Or would they rather just report on different events and actions of people, you know, without any, I would say, overarching narrative, you know, that would bring the whole of human history into one grand narrative? Basically, you know, would they say it was teleological in a sense, or is it just they would report, you know, no, what happened here was one damn thing after another? Well, it, 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 it depends on how they write their own history. They will pr 
probably write the history of uh, humankind in the same way as they write the history of their own alien world. Perhaps they don't even have historians. Perhaps the function of the historian is something very different uh, from uh, the function of the historian uh, in our society. Uh, so I think the answer to the question is the answer to the question, how much do those aliens resemble us? And the more they resemble us, the more they will write the sort of histories uh, that we write. But probably they won't <laughs> resemble us in any relevant sense. Well, I don't know if they're really advanced. Uh, they might look at this whole uh, thing called history, as you say, in a totally different way and um, something that we cannot even imagine how, how they would uh, understand what's happening in the universe and where they stand and where we are and where things are evolving or not or you know things like this. And they might even have a notion of time travel. You know, they could actually go back and forth in time. And so that makes it even more interesting in a sense for a historian, I would say. Um, yeah, but, but do they have a notion of politics? <laughs> if, if, if they it, don't it have seems a notion so universal, of politics, uh, but yeah, maybe yeah, not. <laughs> but, but, and uh, do they have a notion of freedom? Um, do they have a notion of being a member of a community? Uh, I mean, if they don't have that sort of notions, mm. uh, then the histories they will tell will, will be very different from the histories we tell. Right, right. Would you think, even if this this some sort of alien civilization uh, happens to visit us sometimes sometimes in the future, do you think they would still have concept of facts? Would would facts actually always be there, independent of the minds that are actually looking at things and thinking, okay, well, these are facts and these are non-facts. What happened in the past? Uh, how do you think about? Facts and, and, and the role of, of facts in history. Well, fa facts, uh, well, the, the best definition of a fact is what has been done. And also the, the, the German Tatsachen already has that uh, 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 meaning, right? So a fact is something that has been done. Um, if there are aliens that are capable of flying to, uh, uh, to our uh, galaxy you know, or our, our, our planet, well, they have a conception of agency, at least, or a conception of deeds, of something that is being done by an entity. So they will have facts in as much as they will have deeds. And then I wonder, is there some sort of a relationship to be found between facts and truth? If history is a bunch of facts then history can be understood, I would say, in endless ways, right? It depends on the minds that are actually looking at these facts. Now, this is the field, and you mentioned this in the book, I think, as well, this is the field of hermeneutics, right? Uh, how, do, how can we ever be sure that we are not being fooled, you know, that we are not biased uh, when reading or writing history, right? Is there a, uh, such a thing as truth uh, with capital T, right, in history, or there are endless truths, you know, with small letter T's. And um, are we not constructing history as we use, you know, we use very specific methods, we use tools, and we use language and metaphors and all these things. And, and we use these things to read into history, our perceived notion of ourselves and, and the world around us. Is it not? Yeah, true. Uh, but the question is, of course, whether that's a bad thing. And I'm, 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 I don't think it's a bad thing. 
I think we should always realize that as historians, uh, that we are part of the historical process that we study. And you can't take a position from out of uh, space and time and look at uh, the course of history from a point of view of nowhere. And you're always part of the process uh, that you all also describe. But as an historian, you should ask yourself the question that I ask, where do they come from? And a good historian realizes that the question that he or she asks arises out of her own contemporary present. The sort of things that are on our minds in our daily lives, also the sort of uh, things that inform us uh, about what sort of questions do we need to ask about the past. You mentioned uh, depending climate uh, uh, catastrophe. Well, since climate change is becoming more and more real, it does affect the sort of question that we ask about the past, the way human beings affect their environment or the way uh, environmental catastrophe affects social and political uh, change. So as an historian, you should realize or reflect on where do the questions that I ask, where do they come from? Uh, so so that's, that's one thing. It's easy to say true things about the past. I mean, anyone uh, can do it. Uh, but that's not the hard part of being an historian. The hard part of being a historian is to ask yourself how are later events connected uh, with earlier events? And what's the historical significance of this or that event? And how does this uh, significance, uh, what does it tell us about what happened before and what happened uh, afterwards? I think that that's what makes history writing uh, difficult, to see some coherence uh, in uh, the course of events, to ask yourself the question, how does this event lights up a certain past that it creates at the same time. I think that's one of the claims that Hannah Arendt uh, makes. When there's a true historical event, it's an event that is irrevocable. But this irrevocable event lights up its own past. To give a simple example, only after the First World War started, we can ask ourselves the question, how does this event come into being? So how does World War One come into being is a question you can only ask after it did come into being. So in a sense, the event, the start of World War One, creates its own past. It lights up a certain part of its own past that only comes into view uh, seen from the start of World War One. Okay, we then, I think, have to also take into account the different perspectives so if, if the event of First World War, you know, it happened and then simultaneously it kind of introduced itself, in, if you will, in, into the world of history. And, and then historians afterwards, they would come along and say, well, look here, this, this, this is a world uh, event and we need to, you know, we should write about these things. And, and then I think, okay, well, it depends on historians' perspective and the way the historian would write a specific narrative. And that narrative, obviously, I think, depends on the historian's time and, and space and and uh, his or her ideas about the world. So actually, let me ask you this question then. If, if we really accept that history writing is a narrative uh, written about the 
past, you know, constructed by the historian and the present, can we still claim the discipline, the discipline of, of history to be an empirical one, an analytical one? We did, uh, talked about this already, right, about whether or not it was a scientific endeavor. Like a discipline, which is, it's a source-based activity, you can say, which is concerned with the study of change over time. You know, th- that would be the definition. So, in other words, you know, what is the role of narrative in doing history? One role is that it allows you to connect later events with early events. So connections between events are made within a narrative. Secondly, a narrative allows you to deal with this discrepancy between the point of view of the witness or the agent and the point of view of the historian later in time. Because as a narrator, you already know how things will turn out, right? So this discrepancy between the agent's point of view and the historical point of view is what a narrative allows you to, uh, to deal with. Because in a narrative, you can deal with both uh, at one of the same time. Narrative is, of course, perfectly suited to represent changes over time, because that's what stories do. And they are about changes over time. There is always a certain beginning, a sort of development, and a certain ending to it. Uh, or you portray a certain period uh, in broad strokes, that's also what narratives can do. Um, so narratives allow you to represent uh, the past. It allows you to deal with this discrepancy between the agent, contemporaneous point of view, and the retrospective point of view. And it allows you to connect later events with earlier events. So naturally, history is, um, is a narrative, or takes the form of a narrative. But also when you, for example, you walk across the street and you see perhaps uh, a statue or uh, perhaps uh, uh, some graffiti uh, with with a political message and uh, you ask uh, yourself, what does this mean? Well, the answer to the question will be uh, presented in the form of a story. You start, you more or less naturally start telling a story, right? Because that allows you to make coherence within a different uh, events and, there, and it allows you to connect events uh, and, 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 and the other things I said before. So naturally history is a narrative and that's a positive uh, thing, I'd say. Okay, well, so the way I understand it is that if human consciousness is somehow coming up with these narratives, which are you know also based on what happened in the past, you know, we take into account these facts, then I think there is also some sort of a relationship between narrative and uh, the sense of identity. So let me ask you a question about about this. My sense is that we are in some sort of a cultural wars, right, as as we speak. And I mean, history is being weaponized to win the war. Um, Unfortunately, history is once again uh, being used by those who deliberately seek to impose a clear ideological agenda. Now, within the Afghan community, um, and especially among the Afghan diaspora, uh, history is becoming the, you can say, the handmaiden of identity politics. Okay. Now, I'm talking about a very specific uh, intellectual elite, if you will, who uh, promotes poor, you know, one-dimensional understandings of the past, 
and who see the past as a marketplace where they can basically kind of shop around and kind of forge their new identities and all these things. Now, in a country such as Afghanistan, history gets appropriated to promote things like ethnic nationalism and other types of political and religious ideologies, unfortunately. Now, the claim is that by understanding where we came from, we can better understand who we are. That's the basic claim. Now, history provides a sense of context, right, for our lives and our existence. Um, It helps us understand the way things are and how we may approach the future. Um, So let me, again, you know, pose this question to you. Um, What is the role of history in shaping identity, especially when it comes to, say, ethnic uh, identities, religious identities, and even national identities? Well, uh, what I think is always important is... um in an, in an ideal situation, you have multiple histories concerned with more or less the same uh, part of the past. So you can compare them. So you not simply have to accept one history, but there are multiple histories that allow you to compare them. And you can ask yourself the question, which of those histories uh, provide the best insight into what happens and into the humans uh, involved. Um, I think that's important because that is also uh, a warrant against misrepresentation, a warrant, an obstacle against uh, glorification of past. And it emphasizes the importance of debate, that the history that you tell isn't the final end to anything, right? It's something that needs to be debated. And this debate is stimulated when other historians tell a different story about the same part of the past. You, you, you should be able to rationally debate different histories of uh, the same cause of events. That's the ideal situation. Because then you can ask yourself such questions as how... Is this history influenced by certain political and moral values? How is this history uh, telling me something about how I view uh, the world? Which history has uh, the the larger scope? Which history is more consistent than uh, uh, the other? Which history surprises uh, me? Which Which history provides some sort of perspective on uh, current uh, problems and issues. But so some people would say, you know, you should, if I needed to read one book to understand the history of this specific event or this specific country, they would say, oh, this is the final words, you know, on, on the history or this topic. You should definitely read, you know, the latest book, which was written about the topic because it obviously has included, you know, all the previous books and facts and everything else that we know. And then this would be the final monument that we can all look at and study and understand. Uh, you, you don't think that's the case. And it's a good, and it's a good thing that, is, that it is not. Because we should always realize that the questions the historian asks are questions that arise out of a specific historical context as well. Histories are part of the historical process as well, right? So they can, there cannot be a final story of uh, some part of the past. 
So we need to realize what, what's the sort of question this historical historian is asking and how does it connect to the time and place in which this historian is, is living. Uh, but it only becomes clear how specific values and norms inform that history when you're able to compare it with other histories. If you only have one history and you have nothing to compare it with, it's really difficult to, to see how specific values inform this sort of history. I fully agree with that, obviously. But, you know, what, what I'm seeing, unfortunately, happening in front of me is that, as I mentioned before, history becomes appropriated in a, in a very specific way. I mean, it, it gets politicized, right? So, for example, you know, you want to read history about a specific uh, people or their history or, you know, the country, well, obviously you're going to pick up a historian who is a bit more biased towards your views. I mean, in a sense, you know, it's like a, it's coming from a specific point of view, which is very close to you. So you're going to pick up that book and you're going to read that, right? And that gives you like uh, the understanding and the knowledge that you already had in mind, right? It just uh, kind of confirms it for you, if you will. And I think that that's the danger in, in reading history in, in such a way, right? You always have to make sure, as you said, obviously, that you have a, like a, a diverse you know, group of historians and histories that are being written, that have been written, and then you kind of make sure that you, know, you pick up all these books and, and read. And maybe before even doing that, maybe you should, people should actually start reading your book first so, so, so people understand you know, the, the philosophical underpinnings and, and the pitfalls you know, before you start. It's like, okay, well, I, I should be very careful because you know, I too can be biased and this historian can too be biased and things like this. So, and, and that brings me to another question, which is you know, the, the methods and the tools uh, that, are, that can be applied by the historians themselves in order to understand the past. Perhaps at first I should add something to what you've just said, which is perhaps helpful. Uh, perhaps you can uh, compare histories with travel guides. And you have a travel guide with, which allows you to go to a city and uh, look at relevant buildings, uh, relevant sites, etc. Uh, but, but when you have two guides, perhaps one guide is uh, well directs you to other places uh, and shows you other aspects uh, of this city, and you become much wiser from visiting uh, this city with this guide than with that guide. And I think that that that's how it basically works. But you need different guides, travel guides, to a city to be able to find out how one travel guide is. Uh, directing you to certain places and missing out on other places. How one guide gives you a certain perspective on this city, which is rather different from uh, the way another travel guide uh, does, even if they have used the same methods and have traveled to the same places. I see. I, I, I like that analogy, to be honest. I, I think it makes sense. And uh... The way I, I I try to read history is exactly like that. And even if I go to places, you know, I try to um, basically could go to different sources, you know, even if on, on the internet or books or whatever, I'm like, okay, well, this person could be a little bit more biased, you know, towards this specific part of history. And, you know, he's kind of neglecting the rest of it. And so you go and pick up another book and you read about that. So you kind of get like a diverse, uh, you know, knowledge about, about that specific part of the story. So 
I guess in a way you already uh, kind of answered it, but uh, you know when it when it comes to basically original and and primary sources for a historian, right? How do we know we are dealing, you know, with authentic source uh, and not a falsification? This this would be something to keep in mind, right? As a historian, I would I would suppose. Are there specific methods or tools that the historian actually applies in order to not be fooled? Yeah, one is uh, looking into the provenance of the source. So where does it originate and how does it end up in this place where you find it? And of course, when you look at uh, the archival system uh, that was developed, uh, especially from the 19th century onwards, those archival systems are all about provenance, describing where uh, the source come from, how it ended up in precisely this part of the archive uh, and, and what happened with it in between. Another aspect, so that's one aspect of, uh, uh, of of determining the authenticity of a document, looking at, at its provenance. The other aspect is, compa- is comparing it with other sources and see whether similar uh, things are set in it or whether it's similar in terms of uh, the language used or perhaps similar in the terms of the inked being used. For example, if you have a, a, a diary of a, a famous person that is rediscovered, uh, but you find out that the paper or the inked is uh, uh, is not from the time in which the diary apparently come from, well, you can uh, show how it is a falsification. There are tools uh, that allow you to authenticate a uh, document. Uh, comparing it in terms of its contents or in terms of its materiality, allows you to uh, to determine its uh, whether it's original or not. So let us now turn to the different philosophies of history, um, Professor. So perhaps before we get introduced actually to the works of the 18th and the 19th century thinkers, can you tell us a little bit about the main differences between how the ancient Greeks, which is fascinating how they thought about things, you know, how they looked at the past and in what ways this kind of differed from the Enlightenment uh, philosophers' uh, views, uh, you know, about the study of the past? Well, it, it's a, a very difficult question. Also, of course, because the Greeks are already a very heterogeneous uh, group of persons. If you read Herodotus or you read Thucydides, they, they are already very different authors, even though they only... Uh, lived, well, perhaps one or two decades uh, from one another, so they, they are contemporaries. Uh, but other famous Greek historians, again, they are rather different from uh, these two. What we also should take into account is the question, are you writing a history of contemporary events or not? Thucydides, uh, Herodotus, they were basically telling us something about the history of their own time and how it came into being. Whereas historians later uh, would also include uh, much history before their own time. Would you say Homer, for example, was a historian in a sense, or was he more like a poet who was just you know writing epic stories? Well, he was a poet, right? Um, and he, I'm not sure if if it was really a one person or whether 
it's a, a collection of different oral traditions that at some point were written down by one person. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm not a specialist in, in Homer, uh, but clearly he's writing about this major historical event, the Trojan War. So, but the distinction between poetry and history wasn't established at that time, right? Only when history came into being, this distinction between poetry and history, which we take for granted, came into being. Uh, but it wasn't at uh, at Homer's time. So you can also call him an historian, but uh, that simply means being uh, knowledgeable about events happening. And that's what, what history means, eventually. I guess you wouldn't say that the Iliad is a historical document. I mean, it's it's an epic. It, maybe it's a historical document because it's a document, you know, in history, and and we now have that. But maybe I I should say it's like a historical source that people can actually refer to it, you know, while you're doing history. I mean, if you would ask a sixth century uh, person living in Athens what happens in your past, he would probably say, "Well, the Trojan War. It it's part of their historical consciousness." The Trojan War is very much ingrained in the historical consciousness of the Greeks. That's also why it's constantly depicted on, on vases, uh, etc. Uh, so you can't deny it's being a history. But we would say today that it's an epic. And of course, the ancient Greek already did so. And after history as some sort of discipline came into being in Greek antiquity, then the distinction between epic and history started to make more sense. And Tukidides says, he starts his book by explaining how what he does is different from what Homer did. Herodotus talks about what he does, how it is different from Homer, but also how it is similar. Herodotus says, well, I too want to preserve the memory of the great deeds, as does Homer. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the with the Book of Kings. You know, the Persians have their own epic, uh, you know, the Shahnameh. A lot of Afghans and, and Iranians, um, you know, they would say it's like the Shahnameh is the Persian version of the Iliad, uh, which was written by the poet Ferdowsi. I, I'm not sure, but as you already mentioned, yes, a historical document. Yes, you know, if you had asked the... Uh, the Greeks, you know, in the sixth century, they would tell you, yeah, well, that's that's our history. You know, I can tell you about these wars which are mentioned there. But the issue is that if now, right now, if you go into Greece and you ask someone, well, give me, you know, your historical perspective and and in history, and I, I don't think I'm not sure <laughs> that a Greek would tell you, well, okay, let's start with the Iliad and let, you know, things happened, and I and he would or she would start referring to this document as as their history. I don't know. They, they might say, well, it's an epic story and there are mythologies around it and it's in our consciousness as well. And, you know, we accept all of that, but we don't take it that seriously in, in, a, in a historical sense, right? That, you know, whatever is in that book, it is absolutely true and correct and and no there are no myths in that like you you cannot treat it like that no one would but what is your view about epic tales and stories and an actual historical book you need the contrast right so you can only start saying that uh homer is not a history after histories were being written 
So, because that answer only makes sense after Herodotus and especially Thucydides did their work. And perhaps even when Aristotle wrote his poetics, which in part consists of distinguishing poetry from history. And since then, we more or less take that distinction for granted. But it first needs to be drawn. You need to contrast uh, to be able to say such things as uh, Homer's Iliad is uh, an epic. Uh, perhaps there are some historical events in this, but it's not true history. Those things you can only say after histories were being written. And that happened centuries afterwards, right? Okay, so you, you mentioned uh, Aristotle, who... Um who gave us so much already, uh, and he made so many other distinct, uh, distinctions as well. I mean, when it comes to physics, metaphysics, all these things. So this brings me to the three giants of philosophy, which you also mentioned in your book. Um, I would say Hegel, Marx, and Nietzsche. You briefly mentioned Marx. Um, so I, I would like for us to start with Hegel and Marx, who... Uh, you know, who was Hegel's disciple. And then, you know, we will still have time. Uh, we could turn to Nietzsche as well later on. So am I correct in saying that for Hegel, uh, history is a process? You know, it has a direction. It has an aim that can be understood by the human mind. I mean, this is how I read your book and I, this is how I understood his philosophy. I mean, history makes sense to Hegel. There is some sort of a providence, if you will, which is built within his system. Uh, he believed that there is logic to history. Now, Marx, on the other hand, he taught in similar ways about history. Um, to call Marx, you know, history shows progress, yes. Uh, but I would say in a more materialistic direction of uh, some sort of a classless society in the future. Now, for Marx, it was the economic realities uh, of different classes and the struggle between these classes uh, that was the engine of history. Um, while for Hegel, it, it was the mind, or as he, I believe, called it the geist, right? That kind of shaped human consciousness. Uh, Hegel was an idealist, uh, right? That's that's what, what the philosophers would tell you, while Marx was a materialist. So, I have a qu couple of questions about this. First of all, you know, every time I hear predetermined, fixed, providence, logical, all these things, to be honest, I, I get a little bit worried because it reminds me of dogma. You know, um, perhaps you can explain uh, to us how history can behave, I quote, behave in such a predetermined way. Uh, you know, I, I thought us humans, you know, our actions, our reactions... All these things are basically, uh, you know, are, are the building blocks, uh, are the ingredients in a way, if you will, uh, you know, how history comes into existence, right? Um, also, if, if everything is so fixed, uh, according to people like Hegel and Marx, uh, I mean, what happens to the free will, right? Are, are we humans basically some sort of, uh, you know, some pawns in the game of history, you think? I don't think that Hegel and, and also, I think, uh, Marx, I don't think they think that things are fixed. I think it's very important to realize that the world uh, is contingent, that we cannot predict what will happen. Uh, and that's also precisely why we need history, because at some point things happen which are irrevocable but and which are inconceivable beforehand, but afterwards are conceivable precisely because they have happened. 
Um, and that's for all important historical events. All important historical events are irrevocable, meaning they cannot be undone. Uh, they are inconceivable beforehand, uh, but they become conceivable only because they have happened. So I think that, and I think this idea is not in disagreement with Hegel. What Hegel would say, well, the moment we start to think about history, we need a specific assumption, a presupposition. And a presupposition is, is that the cause of history is vernünftig, intelligible. That's, that's what we should start with. Because if we would not start with that, we only would have these random, strange phenomena that we cannot relate. So we need to start with this idea that the historical process is intelligible. And this intelligibility is something that comes from our own faculty of understanding. So it is us who make the past intelligible in the present. And that alters or changes the contingency of certain events. Because afterwards, we can see how they contribute to some sort of development, how they connect to later events, which makes them, which make them less contingent than they were when they happened. But that's, of course, also the danger. The danger is that you think afterwards things had to turn out this way because they did turn out that way. But from the point of view of the agent or from a contemporaneous point of view, things could always be different, but afterwards not. This, this, this change in perspective between a contemporaneous point of view and the retrospective point of view, it's, it's always crucial for all the sort of questions that we ask about history. So when we ask ourselves the question, is the cause of history determined? It's a different question from the point of view afterwards, or, or the retrospective point of view, than from the contemporaneous point of view. Our present is historically conditioned, which means that we can explain how the present came to be what it is. And that makes the present intelligible in an historical sense. And then we point at historical forces that made the present into what it is. And in a sense, those historical forces have determined the present as it is. But it's only something we can say at this very moment. So I guess regarding this historical forces, as you mentioned, um, there is a term, uh, you also mentioned it in the book, the historical dialectic, right? It's, it's the way, I guess, how Hegel taught uh, change happens, right? There's a mechanism. Can you briefly just explain, you know, how this mechanism works, the way you just explained it right now, you know, this this perspective of present and something happens in the, in the past, and then now all of a sudden everything kind of makes sense, you know, uh, how, how should we read and understand this historical dialectic um, according to Hegel? It's, it's again a very difficult question, but the world simply is as it appears to us. And we always live rather naively in our world. But some points in time, the problems we are facing uh, can no longer be resolved from the way we live our lives. And then we need to change. To give a simple example, the problem that the Ancien Regime, so the 18th century, was experiencing 
the problems they were facing could not be resolved within their social and political uh, way of life. So therefore, the French Revolution was necessary to resolve the problems they were facing. And a new period need to come into being. So everything we take for granted, the customs, our habits, uh, they are part of our nature, that they are a second nature. Uh, but at those very moments when a period comes to an end is the moment when we realize that it is a second nature. It is something that we have taken for granted and to be self-evident, but we can no longer do so, which is why fundamental change is required. I've read an interesting article by Simon Lumsden, who says, well, you can also say this about uh, current uh, climate change. The problem that climate change is presenting to us cannot be resolved uh, in the form of life that we are living at this very moment. What we take to be for granted, the customs or habits, uh, they are an obstacle to solving the problem of climate change, which is why we really completely need to change the way we live our lives. So that, that's a Hegelian interpretation of climate change as something confronting us at this very moment. So if, if we put this in this, uh, you know, the, the way the so-called uh, dialectic works and in a Hegelian sense, and, and we take this example of the climate change, right? So I read somewhere this, this, um, <laughs> this beautiful way, uh, I'm not sure how accurate this is, but there, there is like a thesis that we are working on and then there is an antithesis and then some sort of a synthesis happens, right? So if you take something like climate change, Right now, I mean, your thesis would be, well, climate is changing and it is causing a lot of uh, issues and problems for us humans. And then the antithesis would be, well, we have to do something about this. Maybe we need new policies. We need some new way of thinking about the world. Um, so, so these are all, so this is happening in my consciousness. And then these two things come together and somehow a new way of thinking about the world emerges from these two problems, which is the thesis and the antithesis. Uh, is, is that a fair way to thinking about this? Well, yeah, th th this claim that there's a thesis, uh, an antithesis, and then a synthesis, that, that, that's something you read in a textbook, but it's not something that you read in Hegel himself. Yeah, perhaps th there are some passages that suggests something like that, but it's not something he uses when he is trying to explain how historical changes occur. There's also a difference between Hegel and, and, and understanding Hegel's work historically and understanding Hegel uh, in the sense of him being a contemporary, someone uh, who still has something to teach us. And then current present-day interpreters of Hegel are much more interesting uh, than the historicization of his work itself. So when we ask yourself the question, how would Hegel look at climate change? We should not historicize, have an historical reading of Hegel, but what we need is interpreters of Hegel who present him as a contemporary uh, to us. Uh, so the example I gave is, is from this taking Hegel to be a contemporary uh, to us in which we can have some conversation with and, and, and take out of him what he, uh, what, what is helpful to us in our present. And then I think this idea of explaining how a 
period can come to an end is a very Hegelian and interesting idea in the sense that a true insight into what a period made into what it was is only achieved after the period has come to a close. So how climate change, climate change, I think you can say climate change will end a certain period in our history and it will make evidence what was typical of the period that we are at this very moment uh, living through. But a true insight in that period can only be given the moment the period announces its ending. And it does announce its ending in the moment you see that the current problems we are facing can no longer be resolved with what we take to be uh, habits and customs uh, that are central to our way of life. Yeah, well, so that moment of realization or understanding, um, I think uh, he famously, I think, said that the owl of Minerva begins its flight only with the uh, falling of dusk. I guess that's what he meant when he said that, that your history can only be understood in such a way, right? Okay. So now I have a actually a little bit of a concern. <laughs> when I read, uh, you know, your book and I kind of tried to understand this, this very beautiful but also very complicated uh, way of thinking about history, which is historicism, right? So um, now if we really take the Hegelian and the Marxist kind of philosophy seriously, uh, do we not, I wonder, uh, end up thinking of ourselves as some sort of gods, you know, these perfect beings, you know, we possess kind of perfect and absolute knowledge and, uh, you know, knowledge that we can use to kind of build up uh, these utopian societies that Hegel and Marx had in mind, you know, if there is, as you mentioned, if there is a some sort of a rationality behind history, uh, the way Hegel understood it, then it would be logical, right, to accept that there are certain experts of the theory. I mean, the true Hegelians and Marxists, you know, as the absolute leaders in any given society, uh, since only they understand how history is unfolding and you know, and, and where its uh, end destination is. So they have read Hegel and Marx and have understood reality, right? That's the claim. And, you know, the God's eye view of history, in a sense. Now, this is to me, you know, this sounds like a perfect recipe for totalitarianism, uh, or this can easily actually give rise to godly creatures, such as Lenin. We saw this happening in the history with, you know, Stalin, Mao, uh, Paul Pot, um, and even someone who I, I'm not sure uh, you're familiar with, uh, Hafizullah Amin, uh, the Afghan Marxist-Leninist, uh, responsible for the deaths of many, many Afghans, uh, who have understood, you know, uh, history's logic and are now kind of eliminating everyone who can be seen as, as uh, obstacles um, or even enemies of logic and progress and rationality. I mean, didn't the horrors of the 20th century taught us about the dangers of this type of thinking, I wonder? Um, what are your thoughts on Hegel's and Marx's uh, historicism, basically? Well, th there's one problem with this idea that uh, when you look at uh, uh, injustices uh, or atrocities, that you think, well, in the end, something good came out of it. That's, that's the sort of historicism that you find in Hegel. So when we look at injustices and atrocities, eventually uh, things will turn out to be better. 
in response to those injustices and uh, atrocity. And, and the danger with that idea is that you, well, you turn uh, a blind eye to the injustice and the atrocity because you focus on how things turned out to be better afterwards. So, so that's the danger of the historicism you find in, uh, in Hegel. And it's the danger that uh, Hayden White uh, has uh, pointed out in uh, one of his famous uh, uh, essays. Uh, and I fully agree with uh, Hayden White. As all history should be concerned with uh, injustices and atrocity and not with uh, the good that eventually came out of it. So when you're dealing with injustices and atrocity, you should describe it in a way that makes the reader an observant of it. Uh, so that the reader truly realizes uh, the injustice and atrocities uh, being done. And I think this is, this is an important criticism of historicism because historicists constantly think in terms of development. So each time an injustice or an atrocity happens, it's the development that turns this atrocity or injustice to be insignificant relative to the development, right? So that's the danger of historicism and why we should be very worried about the historicist way of uh, thinking. For me, Hegel is always valuable. And why is, is he valuable? Because he argues that there is a history of what we are to ourselves. There's not one constant human nature. No, that, na that there is a history of what we are to ourselves. And that changes over time. And we need to study that history to gain self-knowledge. So I think that's a very important point uh, of Hegel. Hegel is, of course, also very good in emphasizing how becoming modern was such an extraordinary event in the history of the West. So that makes Hegel also very important. Well, that brings me to another critique, because you mentioned the history of the West, which is, you know, the, the idea of history being uh, a progression uh, towards enlightenment. I mean, th this is how I understood, uh, you know, the, the Hegelian thinking about history, you know, so it's, it's like this progression towards enlightenment and liberty. Uh, this, this sounds to me a little bit strange, to be honest. Uh, you know, some argue that seeing history as progress through science, technology, and politics is actually a very Western-oriented viewpoint. Specifically, it is an imperialist narrative, you know, the, the spread of European empires seen through the lens of European enlightenment. You know, this was taught as the spread of technology and, you know, intellectual advancements, you know, to the, quote, undeveloped parts of the world. This, this was how, how this was seen. Um, and through this, you know, the narrative of progress and the bringing of technology by Western empires, you know, to the rest of the world became some sort of a dogma, right? That's the claim. What do you think of that? Is this, to you, a fair assessment of Hegel and his philosophy? I completely agree with the post-colonial critique of historicism. And indeed, historicism, as it's uh, developed in the 19th century, is a justification of colonization, an imperialistic uh, project. Because you're saying, well, there's only one type of development possible, and that's the European type of development. We have already uh, uh, took that route. Uh, we have developed and you still need to develop. So you 
cannot rule yourself, uh, but when we, when we do, uh, we help you uh, get on this track of developments, etc. So this historicist way of thinking was self-justificationary for imperialistic projects. And I think uh, post-colonial uh, uh, scholars are completely right in pointing that out. The problem is, of course, that as a post-colonial scholar, you're also working within this rather Western or European uh, university academic tradition. And it's not something that you can simply shake off or get rid of, because uh, the university and its system that goes along with it has become global from uh, the 19th century onwards. But I think the, the important lesson here is, and, and that's a lesson that uh, Deepesh Chakrabarti taught us, is that when you think about elements of society which we think are modern, such as uh, a constitutional state, uh, certain types of technology, democracy, uh, human rights, uh, those aspects that we associate with a modern state, that you do not think about it in terms of transition in other parts of the world, but that you think about it in terms of translation into their own local idiom uh, and in relation to local uh, traditions, etc. I think that's a crucial lesson that authors such as uh, Chakrabarti teach us. If, if you look at a modern uh, state such as India, that, that you think about it, how they have adopted, appropriated, translated aspects of a constitution, uh, a human rights, which we can associate with the European tradition, that they haven't simply transitioned into that part of the development. No, what they did was appropriated some aspects, translated others into their own idiom and from their own uh, local uh, tradition, habits, history, etc. And that really allows us to to bypass uh, the Eurocentrism, well, in, in our scholarly tradition. I mean, one aspect of, um, especially of Hegel's philosophy, is I don't know how we can translate that, especially when I look at what's happening around me, um, which is this notion of progress somehow, right? Um, now, if I'm really honest, none of these type of philosophies seem to explain the history of a country such as Afghanistan, right? Um, all I see there, if I'm honest, and is regression. I don't see progression towards some sort of a freedom, dignity, equality, all the things that Hegel actually uh, talked about. Now, I have difficulty placing a movement such as the Taliban within the Hegelian framework, right? Um, a Hegelian might say, you know, that what's happening in Afghanistan has a reason, uh, and this reason will be understood. You know, when the owl of Minerva uh, finally decides to take off, well, everything will make sense then. Um, but it's very difficult for me to accept this proposition uh, when I see uh, millions of people suffer, uh, only because, you know, the minds of Taliban hasn't yet reached, you know, a specific mode of consciousness, if you will. Um, that is just, you know, a, a temporary thesis and it's kind of waiting for it is antithesis uh, to give rise to this new synthesis, basically, if you, if you put it within the um, uh, Hegelian framework. Now, this brings me to Nietzsche, 
right, um, whose interpretation of history is a lot more realistic, to be honest. Uh, when I look at what has been happening in a country such as Afghanistan, uh, he does talk about these uh, three different types of doing history, um, or, or basically studying the past. And you mentioned these three in your book uh, at the very beginning. Uh, we have the monumental, the antiquarian, and the critical way of uh, doing history and understanding history. Now, the way my fellow Afghans tend to look at history is really in the monumental way. Uh, I believe this was also preferred by Nietzsche himself. Um, so first, maybe you can tell us about how Nietzsche uh, taught about history. Uh, and then maybe you can perhaps also explain the differences between the three types of history and how they can can be applied uh, you know, in our current world in order to kind of extract value from studying history. Okay, but... but- Perhaps if, if I first may say something about Hegel, the, the Taliban and progress, because that, 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 that's a rather different uh, issue. From a Hegelian perspective, you would say, well, uh, Afghanistan need to be incorporated within a certain Western type of structure to develop. But that's, of course, the sort of thing that we know would no longer take any ser- We won't take that serious anymore, right? But that, that, that's what this Hegelian sense of progression more or less uh, means. Other parts of the world need to be taken up within the hemisphere of the West uh, to become part of the same world historical development. And that's extremely Eurocentristic and that has been vehemently criticized by post-colonial scholars. So uh, that, that, that's no longer t- uh, taken seriously. But I think when we think about progress... We should make this distinction, and this is a distinction from Amy Allen, between progress as fact and progress as imperative. Uh, and when we look at progress as fact, it, it's something that's really hard to establish. Because if you look at what is really happening, it becomes really difficult to see progress constantly and everywhere. You indeed see regress here, uh, perhaps some hopeful developments there, etc., uh, so progress as fact is a very difficult thing uh, to establish. And when someone talks about progress as fact, we should be very uh, wary and critical whether he's not, uh, or he or she's not misleading us. But there is, of course, progress as imperative. And that's the need and responsibility that we have to make the world better. Because we cannot simply sit on our chair and say, well progress as fact is really hard to achieve just so just accept the world as it is and we we, we won't try to make it even better so there is this need to have progress as imperative we need to make the world better but that also raises the question how does the past inform this idea of uh, progress as imperative and then Hayden White would make the argument that we need to focus on those atrocities and those injustices, because they are the biggest contrast with uh, making the world a better place. So that's why it's so important for historians to describe injustices and atrocities as the way they were, without thinking about how eventually things turn out to be better. Uh, Because then you have this, this biggest contrast between a better future, progress is imperative, and what and how the past may inform it. So the past simply is the contrast with what it is that uh, uh, you want. 
Okay. But, but we cannot expect the historians to be some sort of activists as well. I mean, we, uh, I don't know. Should they? Um, well, if they want to be relevant, mm. if, if they want to inspire us, <laughs> yeah. uh, if, they okay. want, yeah. if, if they want that we read them, uh, if, if they want to mm. be providing perspectives on the present, I mean, they don't have to be activists in the sense that they should go out on the street and uh, etc. Uh, but they have uh, to raise their voice within a public debate, right? Otherwise, why why have history or why uh, pay taxes for, for 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 historians to do what whatever they do? Well, that's I think that's a good question, and I think Nietzsche has some very very interesting answers for us. Uh, you know, doesn't he? So, uh, I mean, this this. Three ways. I I really like the way he thought about these things. I mean, this this monumental, antiquarian, and critical. So, if you don't mind, just explaining these two things very, you know, uh, briefly for us, just so we understand what's going on there. Uh, we always should start with uh, the basic question that Nietzsche raises, or the the basic claim from which he starts. He starts, and that is, history should serve life. All sorts of histories are good. Uh, preferable in as much as they serve life. And when they do not, well, they should be dismissed. He distinguished between these three types of history, and each can serve life, uh, but each can also be an obstacle to it. Now, in as much as they serve life, uh, we should praise them, and of course, in as much as they are an obstacle to life, we should dismiss them. Well, he starts with this antiquarian sense of history. This is a sort of history that loves everything that is old, and want to preserve it because it gives a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling uh, at home. Um, a, a good example is, for example, the um, the heirlooms uh, you have from uh, perhaps your your grandparents or or, or, or other uh, relatives, uh, which remind you of of them, uh, and you want to preserve them because it gives a sense of belonging. And, and that's something positive. So we preserve. Could this apply also to culture? Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, uh, we preserve certain sites uh, uh, because we think, uh, well, um, they are typical of our identity or of our history, and then they give the sense of, of belonging. Um, it reminds me somehow of this conservative way of thinking when it comes to politics. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's conservative, right? You conserve things, preserve things to hold on to the past, right? But of course, there's also a downside uh, to it. The more you preserve the past and the more you think of it, uh, love it, the more difficult it becomes to appreciate the present. And at some point, everything in the present just doesn't look as good given what the past was like. And then it becomes an obstacle because you can no longer appreciate the present because you favor the past above it. And then the antiquarian sense of history becomes this obstacle to life. Think, think also, for example, of Amsterdam when uh, they made all uh, the major buildings and uh, in the canals, uh, the, the major center of the town, part of the uh, is a, a UNESCO heritage site, right? So you preserve this part, but it also means that you can no longer demolish a building to build something better or new. And, and anything new that is being built in, in that part is considered ugly or in comparison with this, this old buildings that we need to preserve. But obviously this old building is not just a building. I mean, it, it, it kind of, it has so much value in it. 
as we look at this building, we don't just see building, we see value, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. true. Um, so in as much as it gives us a sense of belonging, of feeling at home, it serves life. Uh, but it can also be an obstacle for it, that we can't no longer appreciate the present in comparison with everything we preserve. Okay, the, the other sense of history is the critical sense. And that's the sense in which we criticize parts of the past that, that, that constitutes a burden to us. Well, a simple example is, of course, the atrocities we associate with uh, slavery and the whole slavery system. That's a part of the past that we all criticize. That's the sort of past that we want to get rid of. So we are very critical towards those parts of the past that we don't think, well, which are simply morally wrong. I guess we, we somehow want to liberate ourselves from the past, is it? Yeah, that, that's what it does. And in that sense, it serves life, right? In as much as uh, it unburdens the burden, yeah, it, the critical sense serves a life. Uh, but of course, the downside of it is uh, that we no longer accept the fact that that's also a part of the past that made us into who we are. So we can criticize colonialism, slavery, etc. But we have to accept that that is a past that made us into who we are today. Uh, so the critical sense can also be making us ignorant and forgetful of the past that turned us into who we are. When it does that, it no longer serves life, but is an obstacle uh, to it. Could we say that the the way of this, you know, criticizing basically the, the past and similar to like an analogy with progressivism, you know, being progress person right now in a political sense, you know, you always want to move forward, you know, you want to criticize the past because it was always like a burden, you know, uh, we are not really proud of what happened, so we need to get somehow, and, and this could be um, very dangerous in a way, I think, because if you look back and you see people have suffered and you want to obviously change it somehow in, in your present moment because that's bothering you, right, as a human being. And so I think the danger in that is that you want to go back and actually cha change the past somehow, you know, or, or you, you, you're just going to ignore the whole thing uh, as if it never happened. Um, or you, you're going to punish people now as we speak in the present because of whom you think, you know, uh, those atrocities happened in the first place. Yeah, true. True. Uh, so, um, well, it, it indeed makes you ignorant uh, and, 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 and it, 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 it makes you think that you can, in a sense, undo what has happened, right? If you criticize it enough, you, in a sense, undo it. Uh, but that is... Uh, it's just a fantasy, I would say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's delusional, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, well, the first sense is this, this monumental sense. And, uh, well, we need heroes. Uh, we need to be inspired. We need to know that great things are possible. And because in the past great things were done, it makes us realize that we can also do great things in uh, the present. And in that sense, this monumental sense of the past uh, serves life. It, it inspires and it uh, makes us aware that great things are possible. And we should do great things, of course, at least according to Nietzsche. Right. 
me let me ask you about this monumental way of thinking. So I, I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into the how my fellow Afghans think about uh, history. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to generalize because I don't know how people generally would think about these things, but my my own sense of it, basically. So uh, they tend to look at history of, of the country in a very romantic way, I would say, you know, um, uh, when things were better uh, because we had these great, you know, strong and fierce leaders, uh, characters like Nietzsche's Übermensch, um, you know, the Superman. Uh, people always look for historical figures uh, they admire for their great achievements and and basically want to kind of copy them and copy their behaviors. Um, this is one of the reasons ideologies never truly were taken that seriously in a country like Afghanistan, because Afghans, I believe, are much more interested in, in kind of producing, you know, this, this type of per, the personality cults. Uh, if you want, you know, uh, Afghan communists, for example, they looked back and found people like Lenin and Stalin as sources of inspiration, uh, as teachers, as their role models. Uh, Taliban look back and see the time of the prophet of Islam as inspiration. Now, this type of copycat behavior has been, I would claim, the hallmark uh, of, of Afghanistan as a nation and its leaders and also its peoples. Now, the danger in this is, of course, that history gets somehow decontextualized, right, out of context. History gets transformed into fiction for political gains, something that is happening as we speak. Uh, you know, the dark sides of history gets ignored, something that we already discussed. Um, you know, another danger is also that this attitude can easily lead to misguided heroism, as you mentioned at the beginning, we need heroes, uh, and all sorts of, you know, ugly nationalism and theocracies, uh, like the one we're witnessing right now in a country like Afghanistan. Now, I wonder what Nietzsche's own response would be to this critique of monumentalism, right? Would he see, you know, the dangers and the flaws of his theory? Or would he rather just be, you know, dismissive of them, you think? Well, one of the interesting things is that when uh, you look for examples of uh, monumental uh, history that Nietzsche himself mentions, he is not thinking about military leaders or political figures. No, he's thinking about artists, uh, philosophers, uh, poets, right? These are the sort of persons that do great things and uh, inspire us. Uh, but he's also thinking about the beauty and the, the power present in, in a very daily mundane life, in the daily life that all of us live. There's also much beauty uh, in there, right? So this monumental sense in history is, in Nietzsche is not associated with uh, military leaders, or political leaders, but it's more associated with aesthetics, a learned culture, and also with religion, because that's also something that is not in need of historization. When Nietzsche talks about this monumental sense of history, he's looking for something that is simply not in need of historization. And I think it's anti, we, very anti-Hegelian in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Nietzsche is the is is the anti-Hegelian uh, mm. philosopher, you can say, uh, and I think it's very important to realize because 
well, I'm an Hegelian in as much as I always think that history is concerned with social and political order. And the social and political order always requires historization. And that means explaining how things turned out to be the way that they did. And we need those stories about the social political order in order that we reflect on our own social and political order so that we know what needs uh, improvement. So I think in, 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 in the case of sh uh, the situation that you described, uh, this monumental sense of history is really an obstacle to life. Yeah, I guess Nietzsche meant when he talked about these things, I believe uh, also that he meant it in a much more psychological way. You know, when he, I think when he talks about power and the rise to power and all these things, I think somehow this has been translated in, in, in political terms, you know, um, a strong figure who comes along and then saves humanity and saves people and things like this, you know, the Ubermensch. And I do understand also the danger in that, you know, just the way we described how Hegel can be read in a, in a very specific, narrow way. I think that that also has happened. We know uh, with, with Nietzsche as well, right? All right. Now, I am increasingly mindful of your time, Professor. So, uh, and I have a million other questions to ask you. Uh, we haven't talked about mortality and eternity, historical insight, uh, meta-history, the role of catharsis in history, all these topics that you do discuss in your book. Um, however, before we call it a day, I just want to ask you a final question, uh, which is really interesting. Uh, about the sublime. Uh, when you talked about this, you know, I, I read it and I was, uh, I, I didn't know what to make of it, right? Um, you know, you have an entire chapter uh, on this called the historical sublime. Now, my understanding is that the sublime is a reference to a very specific type of human experience. Uh, you know, this experience somehow gives rise to human desire and we desire, and this desire can be freedom uh, and dignity, for example. Uh, and in the context of philosophy and politics, the sublime, you know, somehow puts the, uh, you know, the, the human freedom and dignity first. And this comes first, uh, you know, uh, above anything else. Um, now I can see that this can easily also uh, lead to conflicts because, you know, uh, different people and different groups and nations have different experiences, obviously, you know, of the, of the sublime. And they too want freedom and dignity, you know, in the, in the present, uh, based on their past experiences. So, you know, the ethnic, you know, the sectarian, the political and social conflicts of a country such as Afghanistan uh, is a clear example of this, I would say, right? Um, so how can this ever be reconciled, you know, taking this sublime into account? Isn't, isn't the historical sublime, in a sense, <laughs> also a historical nightmare? Well, in, in a sense, uh, what I think is so interesting about uh, the sublime, as it is uh, described in uh, one of the essays by this German uh, poet and uh, playwright and the philosopher Friedrich Schiller, is that um, the sublime experience is an experience that throws us back upon ourselves. Uh, we experience something so overwhelming that we are thrown back upon ourselves and we realize that we have this autonomy within ourselves that is separate from our surrounding, but also from our human, from ourselves as a physiological, natural uh, being. So as a consequence of the sublime experience, 
we realize that we are these this rational moral creatures. And the sublime is the contrast with that. And that's why the sublime motivates us to realize our freedom and human dignity. Well, Hayden White is interested in the sublime because he is critical of historicism. Uh, and he is critical of history as an academic discipline. Because there is this tendency within this discipline to desublimate the past, to look at atrocities and injustices and see them as part of, uh, they are part of a development in a sense that uh, the development eventually turned out everything for the better and isn't therefore much more interesting than the atrocity or the injustice uh, itself. And we need this contrast between the atrocity and the injustice and our need to improve the world in which we're living. And it's up to the historian to provide us with that contrast. And the more this historian talks about processes, developments, progress, the less we have this contrast uh, in view. Well, the sublime is this experience of horror, but also a fascination uh, with uh, what is horrific. It tells us something about who we are as human beings. Yeah. So how can, for example, art help in that sense to understand ourselves and understand the world around us uh, from the sublime's perspective, right? So we look at a piece of art and then we have this, as you say, you know, this experience, this horrific experience that we that we have. And then something happens, I guess, inside, which gives us like some sort of an insight into our own minds and the mind of perhaps other people. I don't know, but how, how does this exactly work in understanding ourselves and, and, and our place? Well, but let me give two examples. When we think about the ancient Greek tragedies, uh, what makes some of those moments in the tragedy sublime is that we see the hero walking towards his doom. We, we simply see him walking towards his doom, which is horrifying, right? But at the same time, it's, it's fascinating because we see, so we don't leave the theater, but we want to see the person walking towards his, his doom, but at the same time, it's terrifying. Let me give another example. And it's the contrast with this experience. And of course, this idea, well, this is not what we want to happen to ourselves. And we want to be free in what it is that we do. A German uh, soldier made uh, paintings of the war in the trenches. The moment he is fighting, that's not a sublime experience. But you can imagine that at the end of the day, when the fighting uh, ceases for a moment and you look out on the trenches and you see this devastated landscape and you realize what you're actually doing and you paint that, that can give a sense of blind because you're horrified by what you see is happening, but you're at the same time fascinated uh, by it. You don't turn uh, your head or close your eyes, but you want to look at the scenery or this painting. But it throws you back upon yourself. It makes you realize that you have this autonomy within yourself who wants to be free and live a life with human uh, dignity. It's an experience that is horrific and fascinating. It makes you realize that you have this autonomy within yourself, that you are a moral, rational creature. 
It kind of reminded me of this uh, painting, The Scream from uh, Edvard Munch. Um, is that is that what he saw on on that uh, bridge when 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 he was passing? He was thinking about this, and then he uh, basically made a painting. You think that was a sublime for him? And then we now witness his experience well, of the sublime. It's a difficult example, but I can I can imagine that when you hear someone scream very loud in your neighborhood, that's frightening, right? Uh, because you get a bit of an unheimish feeling. Uh, confronted with so so it's frightening but at the same time it's fascinating uh, so perhaps it is a depiction of or an expression of this sublime uh, experience but i'm not sure if it triggers this sublime experience i mean if you compare it with the example of greek tragedy when you see the hero walking towards his doom you, you can imagine that it triggers this experience and the same is true of course with these paintings of the war in the trenches during the world war one that's also can trigger this experience of horror and, and fascination at the t same time uh, which throws you back upon uh, yourself and makes you realize uh, what truly made you into the person that you are and that's not your causal relation with your environment and, and your senses but realization that you have this moral autonomy, uh, uh, that you're a moral and rational uh, human being. To be honest, when I thought about it and I, when I read it in your book about the sublime, the first thing that came to my mind uh, was what has been happening in the country, uh, you know, a country like Afghanistan. Is this unfortunate Greek tragedy in a sense? You know, I, all, I, all we have been witnessing for I don't know how many decades is these different acts Right. These different acts, one upon another. And then we are now, I don't know, in act number four or five, whatever. And then there will be another act. And we know that it's already in the making as we speak. And so I don't know what to make of that, because if I when I read history and when I look at what's happening now and I know that this is I cannot say I know because that's also, you know, it's all almost like predetermined if you know, know things. It's like, okay, well, this, this is going to be how things are going to turn out. I mean, one thing you don't know in a country like Afghanistan is you, you cannot, unfortunately, uh, predict things to happen or even wish things to happen in a certain way. People have tried really hard to do this, but it, um, it, it never truly really happens the way people uh, imagined it right, in the first place. And so I think that's also another hallmark of tragedy, right? We see things happening and we are kind of in a very unease with this, you know. Um, so right now, when we look with what Taliban has been doing, right, for the last year, and this is now their second chance, their second act, right? And they're repeating exactly the same things. Now this, you know, opens up like a million things uh, from, uh, you know, someone who is interested in history. Because you're like, okay, well, if it happened the first time, I know how that ended uh, for them and for the world. What is going to happen now? What has history, like, can we look back and say, okay, well, we, we have learned from history, so we should act now as the world community. There's something happening in this part of the world. The first time around, you know, we didn't pay attention and we saw what happened. And it's happening now for the second time. And are we really paying attention? Have we really learned from history in that sense? Um, so th those are the questions that, that uh, do come, come in mind, um, to my mind at least.
But before we end, uh, Professor, um, I would like to read uh, a passage from, uh, from actually George Orwell's 1984 book, uh, and then a very short passage from your own book, uh, where you mention the historian's responsibility uh, towards the dead, uh, which was fascinating. Um, you know, all the people in the past who are no longer with us. Um, so in 1984, uh, George Orwell, he talks about this slogan, which is being used at the Ministry of Truth. The slogan goes something like this. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Right. And so now to your book, uh, and I'm going to read the passage here. So, quote, history offers perspectives on the present in order to deal with the problems of its time. It provides insights into the past that help us orient ourselves in the present. We need history, it is said. To understand the present. As a subject in school, history is usually considered relevant for this very reason. Everyone should know how the society in which they live came about, what is specific to it, and what events and people from that history have been decisive. The historian thus has a certain responsibility for the living, but the historian also has a certain responsibility for the past, for the dead. And then you go on to say, quote, The historian must also make the silences in the past, the voices that were never heard, heard. Only when the voice of the dead and what could not or was not allowed to be said is heard, even if only once, may the dead find peace in their graves. Thus, history serves the dead and does justice to their lives. There is not one answer to what history is. There also is not one answer to what it uses. One conclusion is, however warranted, our linear human earthly existence is temporary, singular, perishable, and finite. That's why we look back and dwell on it, to do it justice, to condemn it, to understand it, to become wiser, to reconcile ourselves with it, for the inspiration and conciliation it offers, for the confidence it gives, and in order to realize it. End quote. So I think um, this is a good place to end, uh, Professor. It has really been great talking to you. I encourage people to buy your book and read it. It is a short uh, book. It is written in a very plain and non-technical language. Uh, it is full of interesting quotes and references. Uh, it is available on Amazon uh, in both uh, English and Dutch. Uh, essentially, I think every lover of history uh, and every student of philosophy should pick up a copy of your book. They won't be disappointed. I'm 100% sure of this. Having said that, please tell uh, our listeners uh, where they can find your work and if you're on social media. First, I want to thank you for uh, uh, the important and interesting uh uh, a conversation uh, we had. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, uh, discussing with you uh, history and, and everything it uh, entails. I'm on Twitter. That, that's all the social media I can uh, stomach. Uh, well, my work can be found. I have this. Is this? Uh, we have at Fug University. We all have this. Uh, when an, anything is open access, uh, you can all also find it uh, there. Yeah, no problem at all. So I'll put all of that in the description uh, as well so people can find you as well. So that's not a problem. Anyways, well, it has been uh, great. Professor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you.